0: Are you looking for freedom? freedom from the daily grind and hustle, or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted. Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala.
1: Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Today we are getting into episode two of a ninety-minute call that Kara and I had with Morgan Housel, who wrote The Psychology of Money. If you um, skipped the last episode, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to that one first. If you're hearing this and you haven't heard episode one, um, I would definitely go back and listen to that first. So. Um, Morgan, just a, a wealth of information, and I love his book. So, if you haven't gotten your hands on the book called "The Psychology of Money" yet, with Morgan household, go out there and buy it now. But let's get into episode two.
0: Since my wife and I grew up pretty comfortable and confident in who we are, we just like we ourselves don't have a lot of desire or willingness to want to be flashy and show it off. Because I feel like we've always been comfortable. Like this is just who I am. It's just it doesn't really it doesn't really matter. It doesn't doesn't gain me anything to show other people what our net worth is. So that's where I think, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm probably wrong to say that there's no couples who have been financially far apart and then have not come together. I mean, I'm sure there's been plenty of success stories. Sure. I just don't have any, any experience with myself. But I would just view that as a very difficult uh, hill to overcome if there's a big gap between two people. Yeah.
1: Well, I was just thinking about um, the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Have you ever read that? Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. It's a great. great book.
1: Well, and it was just crazy because right there buried in the middle of the book somewhere was like the most important decision you'll make is the partner you pick. And I was like, Yeah,
0: wow, it's crazy. And I feel like for, for me, maybe this is true for you guys as well. Like when I met my wife, she was 19, 20, I was 21, something like that. And I was, I was, our, I was big into finance back then. I was big into investing. I knew finance was going to be my career, but I had no clue what my financial philosophies would be as an adult. And she didn't ever. So I think that was just that was that was luck that it just turned out that we got on the same page financially and there's never really been any spending debates or budget debates ever it's just always on the same page sounds like you guys are maybe in the similar and i think a lot of that is luck it's just the luck because most of the time when you meet your spouse either you're young or you're just smitten with love and you're not really thinking about it you're like oh we can get over that like he thinks this, I think this, but we can we can come over that. And it's just kind of it's just kind of luck that you end up with the with, with with the right person financially. I think.
2: Yeah. Do you think that you can change that though? Because, like I did, I used to do like courses with with women around their money mindset, and part of it was really like going back to those early childhood memories because yeah, most of the things we believe aren't really ours. They're something that's been passed to us from you know, things around us, our circumstances, like you're saying, like if you grew up in the ghetto and then, you know, then you're going to have that viewpoint. But if you start questioning and asking, like, is this really truth? Do you think that there's a way to like change that?
0: If there is, it's really difficult. And I would say too, I think just like, it's the same thing with politics where most people gain their beliefs from their parents, but it's polar. Like you either grew up with a father who was deeply conservative and therefore you become deeply conservative or The opposite. You grew up seeing your father as a wacko, and you're like, "I'm going to become a deep liberal." It's like it's either you, like you, you always gain your views from your early childhood experiences, but it can go, it can go polar in either direction. And I think it's similar for money. I think a lot of people grow up in poverty, and and they think, "I am not going to repeat the mistakes that my parents made," or they grow up in poverty, and because of it, they were never taught any good financial discipline, and they grow up to be deep in debt, spending way more than they make, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know if people can, I mean, it sounds like you have much more experience with dealing with these situations than I do, but I'm a firm believer that for most financial decisions, like most financial mentalities, you kind of get locked into who you are for most of your adulthood pretty early on in life based off of those experiences. And I have a hard time seeing how most people can change who they are. It doesn't mean it's impossible or that other people haven't done it. It's just, I've seen more examples of people being really locked into who they are.
1: Well, and I think that I've learned so much just from even just talking through just just that portion. There is a small percentage of people, whether it's drug addicts or, you know, people that even in the prison system, I mean, how many people actually get reformed and changed?
0: Relapse, right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a very, very small percentage. And I think we're used to dealing with the small percentage, whereas I think, and that was a mind shifting thing for me for even in GoBundance, like the majority of the GoBundance guys are like, they're the one percenters of, of, you know, bucket list adventures and family guys. And um, so sometimes we get in these little, um, I guess, ecosystems where, you know, because we're seeing a higher percentage of, and I, I loved all the stats and everything in your book too, because when we get in these little echo chambers or ecosystems where there is a higher percentage of change and success and, or, or even like if you know uh, we we know a, a a couple rough not we don't know them very well but they're they're pretty successful on you know like uh, marriage counseling and that kind of but that's not the norm yeah um, so I think that was the thing that I just took away from that like whole I think some people can but what I heard you say was the, it's not normal um, even when you're thinking of, about like there was that yeah. stat that you said that like the point zero 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 one percent of Like the impact, but in our mind, it's like 80% of the way we think about money is 80% of how we perceive
0: the world. And so I think it's just shifting that. Mm -hmm. Like, who are we actually dealing with? Totally. I see this a lot too with my book sales overseas. And there'll be people who write me and be like, hey, I read this book as an Indian citizen and there's so much stuff that might make sense to you as an american but it's just not applicable or it's so counter to the experiences that we've had in india or china or mexico wherever it might be and that's i I see that a lot too like i i see the world through the lens of a college educated white american male (laughs) that's not my fault it's just who i am But everyone gets sucked into like like whoever they are, that's the, the lens in which they see the world. And you can try to be empathetic to others and put yourself in other shoes and try to be open-minded and well-read, et cetera. But nothing is more persuasive than what you've experienced firsthand. And nothing ever will be that persuasive. So like whatever you've seen firsthand, that's that's how the world works to you. And everyone gets trapped in that. I, I know I'm in that as well. Like one other like really quirky example of where I see this a lot is when you travel overseas, uh, And like cab drivers understand foreign currency conversions. They 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 will tell you like like the dollar conversion rate that day, which in America, even like financial professionals feel like don't understand currency conversions that we're just so oblivious to like the dollar is like strong and it's not going anywhere and it doesn't fluctuate. It's just like it's a strong thing where anywhere else, even in first world nations, you go to like Australia, New Zealand, they know the dollar conversion rate like that day. And I think we're just so oblivious to that, that kind of stuff. And there's so many examples of that, of just like people get sucked into their view of the world and assume that it applies to other people when it's so completely different. Yeah. And it's true for the economy right now. You have like the stock market booming and by a lot of metrics, the economy booming and tens of millions of people in deep poverty. If you owned a dry cleaner in the last year, like you are still in the equivalent of the Great Depression right now. And there's a lot of people in that situation. So I think it's just so easy to get sucked into your own view of the world. Everyone does it. I don't know if there's many good solutions for how to get out of that either.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, Is there, is there, do you create any kind of practice where you, you know, try to make sure you're not getting stuck in your own world or is it just go all in on, I mean, because I like, that's kind of a new, your whole book is kind of reframed my thinking around what i think i know and even just in the echo chambers or the echo chambers of you know being in people that are, are you know constantly working to transform that's not normal
0: yeah i you know i think there's 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 a couple of ways to to if there is a way to get around it one is just i become much more humble in my ability and my willingness to forecast to be like oh this is where the economy is going to go next this is what this is this is who's going to win the next election this is who's going to it's just like when you realize that your view of the world is infinitesimal to what else is out there that's then you just like i don't know what's going to happen next to me this was uh, the fir- the first like stark example of this that i had was for better or worse in 2016 i did not know one single trump supporter before the election not one not a single person from my from my world view and everyone around me hillary clinton was going to win 99% of the vote I I, I didn't actually, I didn't actually believe that, but everyone around me, that was that was the world, and I think there was another half the country for whom was like, oh, Trump's going to take this by a landslide. It's obvious because everyone around them was showing that too, and that was the the perfect example of like you can get sucked into your own little world and then. And then the future is obvious to you. And then you are so susceptible to being completely surprised and shocked when when the future is obvious based off of your view and you're missing 99% of what else is out there that was the first really stark example of the of those like oh i have no ability to forecast what's going to happen next because i live in a bubble and everyone lives in a bubble yeah. so that's that's the first way I've, I've like tried to get around this is just like much more humility of just like <laughs> i don't know i have no idea what's going to happen next in the economy or politics or anything like that and then the other that's more difficult but just because like i said nothing is more persuasive than what you've experienced but i i i try to go more out of my way now to be like rather than trying to reinforce my views Like, let's go out of my way to read about other how other cultures are doing economically and what other people are thinking. Part of this that's really difficult, particularly for something like politics, but also economics, is that if you go out of your way to read the other side, it's very easy to instantly kind of characterize them as wackos, as crazy as they don't understand it. So how you need to kind of frame this is who do I respect in some parts of life? who also have different views than me than the, in other parts of life. So is there someone out there whose economic views I really admire, and they're such smart investors, and like I really admire them. I, I know they're smart and good thinkers, but they completely disagree with me politically or whatever it might be. Because I'm not going to write that person off as a wacko, because I know they're really smart, but they think very differently than me. That's the kind of person who like, I've been trying to open my views to a little bit more, because it's so easy for me, too, to write off yeah. Other people, it's just like, well, I like you think differently about me about things like politics because you're crazy. It's so easy to fall into that. <laughs> um, so finding people who you are, you know are not crazy but disagree with you, those are the kind of people that I think have a good chance or ability of like actually shifting your view of the world.
2: Yeah, that's so good. Like that's the whole thing of like the two sides of the coin. Have you ever heard that? Like, there's this side of the coin, this side of the coin, but then there's that edge piece. And the way that you, and that's like seeing both sides, but the way that you said that brings out such a good perspective mm-hmm. because you can look at that person and like you said, you trust them or you, you know, there's a part of yeah. you that trusts them rather than just writing them off. I like that. Yeah.
0: Yes. Because I think there are a lot of people who actually their views get reinforced because yeah. like just keeping it, this to politics, but this is true for finance as well. If you're like, okay, I'm going to go out of my way to try to understand the other side. Yeah. And then you go start reading the most extreme elements of the other side. And you're like, see, I knew it. You're crazy. And then you're, reinfor- and then you're reinforced your own view. The other side is crazy. Therefore, I am more right than I thought I was before. That's an easy trap to fall into as well.
1: Yeah. Well, your, your talk at GoBundance, and I'll, I'll be honest, like before GoBundance, before I I think I knew you were coming. And so I, but I hadn't, I didn't really, I didn't really know who you were. And then when I heard you talk, I'm like, and and then reading your book and listening to it, it's kind of like what Kara just said. I would put, for for me, I would put you on the edge of the coin, not like if I'm heads, you're not tails, but you've really, I like being on the edge of the coin. And that's one thing that your work has really done for me is like, um, you know, just even thinking about the, the echo chamber, you know, I have some questions around like debt and real estate. And, you know, cause I've always been a risk, even though we started out by saying we're less risky, I'm still pretty like, woohoo. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, your your work has really caused me to just kind of step back and and so I don't think you're crazy, um, but it's caused me to like you know I respect the work you've done and it's caused me to really think. Whereas, like, I wouldn't read Dave Ramsey's book necessarily because I think he's crazy. Um, that's like too extreme. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I think I think for a lot. Well, and thanks for that. And I think a lot of it for me is finance is just like the realization that people are so different and have different goals and different risk tolerances and different aspirations that even people who manage their money very differently than you aren't crazy. And so there's people who invest totally different from me, spend totally different from me, have different views on debt, et cetera. And I would never, I think Dave Dave Ramsey is more into arguing and being like, what you're doing is stupid and it's wrong and you need to do it this way because that's the right way. And it's like, like, there's, no, there's no right or wrong way. It's just once you view money as a tool to give yourself a better life, then you're like hey if it's making you happy and if it's if it's if it's helping you live a good life then great like more power to you
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and you, know, and you know since since everyone's going to do things a little bit different it's almost like exercise where i i exercise with the sole goal of like not gaining weight but i have no i have no desire to become a super athlete to be ripped to be like a world class you know, marathon, right? Like zero desire. But there'd be other people who would look at me and be like, you're not doing health the right way. You should be working out more. You should be eating better. And I'm like, that's that's not my goal. I just, I don't have a goal to become a super athlete. Yeah. So what you view it as like people have very different goals and you're like, there's no one right answer to the right way to manage money. And I think people like Dave Ramsey have built big businesses with the idea that there is one right, right way and I'm gonna sell it to you. I'm gonna show you what's the right way. And if you're not doing it this way, you're wrong. That's very persuasive from a business point of view, but it's in, in practical terms of money. It's just not how people think. There's this is good analogy that I like for medicine where for over a century, the view in medicine was that there was one right answer to all ailments and the doctor had that ailment and you as a patient didn't have much say. If you go to the, if you go to the hospital, the doctor is gonna do what he thinks is right and your views don't really matter. And in the kind of the 1980s, there was a book, I forget the name of the book, but it had a huge impact on the medical community. And the view was all patients have different views of what's right or wrong. And therefore, if you take two patients that both have terminal cancer, one patient might say, throw the kitchen sink at this surgery, chemotherapy, everything. And the other patient might say, just give me some Vicodin and send me home. And both of those, both of those, decisions might be right for those two people, even if they're the exact you know, same age, same ailment, and whatnot. And that, that's, why, like, that's how medicine works today is the doctor says, here's what you have. Here's the options. What do you want to do? And it's up to you, the patient. And I think money is the same as like, it should be the same. Like, there are some baseline principles of what we know is going to be like, very true for everyone. But other than that, like, here's 10 different options. Pick the one that works best for you. And I think a lot of people in finance When they see someone who is doing something different than them, spending different than them, investing different from them, it's easy to say you're wrong. You're doing this wrong because you want to think that you're doing it right. So if other people are doing it differently, then they have to be wrong. And most of the time, it's like, no, like both of you can be right for you and make the right decision that's right for you. So I know that there are things that I and my wife do with our money that other people, including you, might disagree with um, and that would be wrong for you but it's right for us. So like, who cares? That's, and what's what once you like block out the rest of the world, and just be like, this is a tool to make my family happy. Then it's like, I just don't, I just don't really care what other people are doing that much. I want to help other people. And if I can share knowledge with other people, that's great. But at the end of the day, you just got to figure out what's right for you. So good. Yeah. Love it. Anything?
1: So I have a question that I've I've been trying to reconcile this too, but you, you made the comment in your book about, um, and this was mind blowing to me too. Um, you know, retirement being, I don't know if you read this part, but a retirement being a fairly new concept, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, like one generation old.
1: Yeah. And it's crazy to me. And then, so what I'm trying to reconcile right now, and it, I mean, if, well, I was going to preface with, if you don't have an answer, fine, but you, I don't, I don't need to even do that. Um, it is such a new, we're, it's such a new world we're living in, but then everything that's been happening too, there's that there's there's the statement, um, it's different this time, right? And I think you even alluded to that in your book, but I, yeah. I've i been having conversations in a lot of circles lately about, um, you know, anytime that we say it's different this time, I've always just kind of hesitated too. But even going into COVID, all the GoBundance guys were like, oh my God, real estate's we're done. Like people are not going to pay their rent. And then, you know, as you're going through COVID, you're watching things happening and, you know, money's being printed and everything seems okay. But still, I was not overly optimistic on real estate, even though I'm a big real estate guy, because, you know, even the eviction moratoriums and all of that, like I would have never imagined an age where the government would step in and bail out all kinds of stuff, but say to one sector, um, you, you can't get your money. And so, like until the last couple months, I've been a little standoffish on real estate because I'm like, you no, know, I would have expected a real estate crash a few years ago. Um, but now I'm starting to like hear conversations in the real estate circle, and I'm starting to think this even too like it's different this time. Um, yeah.
0: To me, when people mockingly say, "Oh, you think it's different this time," with the idea that like it's never different this time, I'm like. All of history is a study of change and surprise. The entire field of history is change and surprise. But people have this view that like you can read history and use it as a map to the future when the whole study of history is the, the events that shocked people and surprised people. Like, do you not see the irony of this? Yeah. And so it's it's always different this time. There's never been a time when it's not the same. I'm actually writing a book right now that's about. The things like like the few things that never change and will never change, and there's few of them, because everything else is subject to change. Everything else evolves. Everything else changes. And a lot of this, like in terms of policy and whatnot, the idea that if you had a pandemic, real estate would crash, was absolutely the right view. If we were in the year 2001 or 1983 or 1929, that's absolutely the right view. We just happen to have a political climate. And a Federal Reserve that was willing to pull out the bazookas and spray money all throughout the economy. Yeah. So it's, and, and they would not be willing to do that in, in, in a different era. That's like a new mentality that they have that they learned after two thousand and eight that gives them this like this backbone to to do things like that. Mm-hmm. So the world is very is completely different now than it was than it was back then. Even like if you look at valuations in the stock market, they look extremely high today relative to 50 100 years ago like a long term history and and they probably are but 50 years ago the stock market was made up of mm. banks steel companies and railroads like that's what the stock market was yeah. and now it's digital services like things changed it's a completely different composition and the idea that we should value companies today the same way that we did when they were steel and railroad companies is ridiculous yeah. so I think most people who say, like, mockingly say it's different this time, like that's just a cop out for not wanting to admit that the world evolves over time. Of course, the world evolves, and there are things that do never change. You need to pay really close attention to those, but most things are always, always changing. So retirement, like, like, like I gave in the book, the, the idea of everyone having a dignified multi-year retirement or decade-long retirement—that's like a thirty or forty-year-old idea. It's brand new. And so I think we don't really know how to do it that well yet because it's so brand new. So we don't know how to save for it. We don't know how to invest for it. And we don't know what to do in retirement. Like, what is our what is our purpose of life? What is our identity? Our identity Once we stop working, and we go to retirement. We haven't figured that out yet because it's all brand new. And that's why I think so many people struggle with it.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about it. I don't know what part of your book it was, but it made me start thinking about, you know, even there's a lot of cultures where when somebody's no longer a contributing member of society, they like do the death marks. They go out and just die in the winter, right?
0: that's what that's what most most American Indian tribes would do. It'd be like, here's a blanket and a bucket of water. And you just you just like walk off into the bushes and that's you're done. (laughs) You're over. So very a very different view. But until like even if you go back to like the 1950s, like our parents generation, the huge majority of people worked until the day they died. That was it and when social security you know came about in the 1930s it was meant to be insurance not a pension it was it you know social security insurance this is like in in the crazy rare case that you live long enough we'll give you a little bit of money but most people aren't going to make it that long they're going to die before like when social security came about like you you could get a check at like 59, and most people, the the average person died at 61 or something like that. Like it was a very close. It was not meant to sustain you for decades. Yeah. So the world that we're in now is totally different, and especially like how that might change going forward. There's a good chance that your kids and my kids will live to 100. At least one of them. Just in like the 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 the, the change in medical technology and the trajectory of life experience. There's a good chance. So if we maintain this idea of you retire at 65, you're going to have three or four decades of retirement. And there's no, like, there's no 401k, IRA, or pension that is like prepared for the average person to sustain them for 40 years. But that might be the world that we're living in not that long from now.
1: Yeah. That's so crazy. Um, I loved what you said about um, things that have never happened before happen all the time.
0: Yeah. That's like, that's all of history. Yeah. (laughs) Here's the example from this. I finished writing the book in January, 2020. So there's nothing in the book about COVID. It's like, as I was writing it, like something that had never happened, at least to us was about to happen. And like, there's such a long history of that, you know, whether it's like September the 11th or Pearl Harbor or COVID, like these things that you can never imagine. Have, not only do they happen all the time, but those, that's what actually moves the needle. And the stuff that's in the newspaper all day, that tends to not matter that much. The stuff that we're reading about, it's the stuff that people never in their wildest dreams could have imagined. Mm-hmm. Uh, like would being like COVID and 9-11 are the best examples from, from our lives of like the day before they hit you would have been like that's impossible that could never happen and then they not only happen but they change everything yeah. Yeah. and that'll be the case for the rest of our lives like the biggest news story of the next 20 years guaranteed is something that you and I would find preposterous today yeah. that's yeah. always going to be like, that's always been the case and I think that always will be the case that's interesting
1: um, you have any no on I'm just curious on the uh, on the kid front, so you guys have younger kids. Um, yeah.
0: do you guys have any intentional parenting plans around uh, money and, and how you guys raise your kids? It's actually funny because at noon today, like two hours from now, we're sitting down with an estate attorney. We, we, we don't have a will, we don't have any funding, so we're doing that in like two hours, and a big part of that is like, if my wife and I were to die tomorrow, what, how do our kids? Do they get X dollars at 18 and X dollars at 25? That's a tough, like, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Hopefully this attorney in two hours does have have the answers to that. But there's, a, there's another great quote from Buffett that I love where he says, he wants to leave his kids enough money so that they can do anything, but not so much money that they could do nothing.
2: Mm-hmm. I think
0: that's a great, a really great view of parenting. And I feel like when I was a teenager, a young adult, when I was like transitioning out of my parents' house into young adulthood, I always knew that my parents were the ultimate safety net, and that they would never let me fall on my face, and that I would never starve, I'd never be homeless, I would always have health insurance. I always I knew that, but at the same time, I knew that they were not a fuel. They were not just going to send me a check just so that I could, so I didn't have to work. That was never, and I knew it was never going to be the case. And I think had, knowing that they were a safety net meant that I had, I had a like a foundation. I can go out and take some risks. Like I wasn't that scared. Because I knew that they were always there. Even when I was like 25, I knew that if everything fell apart, my parents are there, they're just going to be there. But they're never just going to pay for me to to live. I think that was a great, a great situation. And I I don't even know if they did it intentionally. It's just kind of how it ended up. But that's what I want to do for both of my kids as well, is make sure that they know that I'm a safety net. That they're never, they're always gonna have the basic necessities in life, no matter what, no matter what happens, I'm never gonna let you suffer too much, at least. But I'm not gonna be a fuel. You gotta figure all this out for yourself. I'm not gonna, I'm not just gonna send you money because we have money and you might want it. That's never gonna be the case. I think if you can effectively communicate that to your kids, that's probably the, in my view, one of the best situations that you can put them through is like there, there's a safety net, but never a fuel. Yeah. So since our kids are young, we haven't had to put that into practice yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't had to do it. But I think that's the broad philosophy that we want to raise them with. When I look at my two kids right now, I'm like, I can try to plan for what I'm going to do for you when you're 20, but who the hell knows where this is going to end up? you know? Yeah. So since they're so different like that, it's like, I think you can have broad philosophies about what you want to do, but the realities of what is actually going to play out in practice is like, who knows where that's going to end up.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting. Cause, uh, and I love the safety net too, because yeah. I think our kids know, um, you know, two of them are on their own and one's a senior and they don't really ask us for much and they're, they're both doing pretty well, but I don't know that we've ever, I, I, I think I want to have an actual conversation with them around. I think they know it, but I love how you framed it. Like, you know, we're here for you. Cause I think sometimes too the, the risk piece, you said that you felt comfortable going out and doing some things because you always knew, so I think that's one thing that I'm taking away from that too, is just having a conversation with, even though I think they know that we're, we would be there for them. Um, yeah. I'm thinking specifically like Tim, our middle son, um, he went, wanted to go to this school. And when we got into the financial aid room, he loved everything about the school. He was like, yes, I love it. And then when we got into financial aid, the financial aid person was like, oh, you know, there's that you can get loans and all this stuff. And when we were done, I said, Tim, what do you think? And he's like, well, I really want to go. I love it, but I don't know if I want to go in debt.
0: And I was like, (laughs) we're going to help you, man. Like, um, so yeah. uh, But I think the fact that he didn't know that is really, is really critical. He didn't just assume my parents will pay for this. That's fine. The fact that he didn't assume that is actually like a great sign that you're finding that balance accurately.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, even when you said that, I feel like that's what our kids feel is they feel the safety net, but also like the fuel. And you put into words because people will ask us that all the time. Like, how did you not? Because our kids never went with anything that they didn't need or want like we're pretty like generous with them mm-hmm. but they also have this like tim thinking we're not going to help him with his school like not yeah. assuming, not not assuming, assuming. That are. Yeah. so i'm like i, remember, I don't know how he did that yeah
0: no that's that, that that's really that's that, that's really good like finding I, I think if if you're too explicit about the the arrangement if you're like oh go out and take any risk you want if you fail I'll i'll back you up no problem If you're explicit about it, that's probably not great either. Finding the balance between being explicit uh, but not too explicit is is a really tough thing for parents. So I I think about that a lot as well. I think a lot about it in terms of how do you, do you let your, I'm curious, since your kids are older, do they know your net worth? Do they know your income? Do they know like what resources you have?
2: I don't think they know like numbers, but we're pretty like open, like talk about money very openly with them. But I don't know if they know how much we make, mm-hmm. what our net worth is. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think they know any of that.
1: But like Kara yeah, said, I, we've never, we've never not had, um, whether it was business challenges, positive. Like, I don't think that we would have a conversation. Like if we were, you know, there was a period of time in 07 where a gold mine went bankrupt and they owed us like 400 grand and we were really struggling. And I don't know that we would have that conversation in front of them, but we've always had open you know, if I'm having a challenge at work or whatever or business or like, we, we didn't really hide any at that and positive either way. So, but I don't think they know exactly what our net worth is. And one, while we're talking about this too, one of my goals, you know, when we are talking about Warren Buffett and I have this thing on my vision board, I want to have a small family office where the kids come in a, a certain amount of net worth dedicated to an investment fund where the kids come in once a quarter you know, with their spouses and, and we have a family office meeting and they participate in, you know, selection, maybe we bring in advisors and that kind of stuff, let them hear the pitches from, you know, operators that want some investment or whatever. Um, And if they want their inheritance, then that's how they get it.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I really like that. That's, that's, that's a cool idea. And I think if it's, I think if, if it's that merged with, like they have to have their own lives, of course. Like the like the family office is not going to sustain them. That's great.
1: You know, one of the, I'd, I'd be curious about your one thing I really appreciated about you from stage. Um, you know, I think when you take a position uh, or write a book like you have, the psychology of money. I mean, I even saw it. At Go Abundance people were asking you questions like you're a fortune teller or, you know, going to project the future. And so I, I, you know, coming into this call, I really wanted to make sure that I didn't do that. Cause you're so um, I, I'm sure the conversations you have, you've got insight into, but you're not going to forecast the future. So I get that, but I would be curious around what you think about this um, with our parenting style. So we've worked really hard for our freedom and to be able to, you know, any business that we've gotten into, we always try to be able to, go wherever, whenever, you know, if one of the kids, any, anything, we can take off whenever, but we also didn't want the kids to get jobs because yeah. <laughs> that took away from our freedom. And, you know, I I've said this until recently, like, you know, anytime somebody would ask us a question about parenting, I would say, well, the jury's still out. Cause you know, they're, but I kind of feel like the jury's not out anymore. They're all functioning adults. I think they're, yeah. um, they're going to, they're going to do their thing. And I
0: think they're well, but what,
1: what do you think about that?
0: I I heard this phrase really well just a week or two ago from a guy named Howard Linsen who said there's two phases of of raising kids there's parenting the parenting phase and the launch phase and the launch phase is when like you are like getting that, like moving them like from college out into the real world that's when you're launching them and being like okay you're out on yourself now and he said those are very two distinct phases and a lot of parents I think get stuck in the parenting phase and when their child is 20 21 22 they still want to parent them. Mm-hmm. Which is natural and makes sense, but it's like, no, your job now is to launch them. That's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Very different from parenting. I thought that was a very uh, that was a great way to to phrase this. I would like for me, I got my first job when I was 17. And I feel like I was kind of a late bloomer then too. I feel like all my friends were like, You've never had a job, like what's and I was yeah. at 17. And so I think it's it's very different from where you grew up as well. I grew up in Lake Tahoe in an area that was not like most most of my peers were not very well off. Um, most of the jobs in Lake Tahoe are like $8 an hour service jobs. So most of my friends growing up were like, I have to work if I want to, if I want anything in my life, I have to work. And when I, even by the time that I was in college, uh, the idea of like, why am I working was not because like, oh, I want my own spending money. It was like, this is like, this is how I eat. (laughs) Like like my parents weren't going to let me starve. But if the idea of when I was 20 years old, if I said, mom and dad, can you send me some money so I can buy food? They would have been like, go get a job. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, you got to go do this and so i think having that independence was was that kind of forced independence was good for me Mm -hmm. because i looked at a lot of my peers in college who even when they were 25 they did not know how to live like an adult they were so dependent on their parents Mm -hmm. and for me when i was 25 i had been completely financially independent for seven years Mm -hmm. and so i think it was really helpful for me to to have that and even I, i even like you know, kind of, kind of rambling here, but the first year or two after I had a full-time job, I think my parents were still paying for a lot in my life. Yeah. So they kind of eased me into it. I remember the last thing that they stopped paying for was my car insurance. and that was probably when I was like 25. I was like almost married at that point, and they're still paying for my car insurance. So they kind of let me out gradually rather than one day just being like you're cut off. I remember for years I had, I had their credit card, it had my name on it, but it was their credit card, and I could use that for food and gas. And that's probably when I was like 17 and 18. And then it was like, okay, now you can use it for just, maybe it was just gas. And then it was like, okay, this is just for emergencies. This is just like if something huge comes up. And then one day they're like, okay, give us a credit card back. Like it was an, it was like a gradual easing out of it. Yeah. And I think that was really important for me as well. Because when I when I was making eight bucks an hour at 17, it was like, yeah, but I got my parents' credit card. Like, this is what's going to, like, there's not too much pressure. And this money that I make at work, this is like building up my savings, but there's not too much pressure to, like, like, this is not to live. And then easing me out of it was really good. That too, I don't think that was intentional, the way that they did it. But I think a lot about that for my kids as well. Rather than being like black and white, either you live in the house or now you're 18, like, get out of here, best of luck. It's just like a really gradual easing out of it. Yeah, that's good.
2: Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of how we're, we've been doing like our kids, like our middle son, he's in school. So we're, we're, we're sending him some money, but like, I just give him a certain amount of money a month and he can do with what he wants, but I'll he'll talk to us. He'll be like going to the grocery store, trying to get the best deals. And I'm like, you probably have enough money to, you know, buy groceries without looking at, it. but I like that. He's like thinking like that too, because it's teaching him a lot.
0: Yeah. I think I was proud too the first time that I used my credit card to buy groceries yeah. rather than my parents. I think it was yeah. like, cool, I've, I've made it. Like, I can do this myself now. And there's a sense of like independence there of, of doing it. Yes. But, but if I was forced to do that one day when I was 17, I would have been like, this is terrifying. This is absolutely yeah. terrifying to be forced into this new world. When I remember for me, so I turned, I turned uh, 18 in 2001. And I'm born in November. So it was like a month after 9-11 is when I turned 18. Two months after 9-11, I I turned 18 years old. And when you're 18, you have to sign up for the draft. There's not actually a draft these days, but they make you register for the draft. And I remember being like, holy shit. Like the world, we're about to go to war and I might be a part of it. And two months ago, I was a child. I was a little child living with my parents and now I'm in this real world. And I think like when, when, when anything is that stark, like the transition from childhood into adulthood can be terrifying for people, and if you are also forced to have complete financial independence, that black and whiteness can be like really really challenging for people as well, even if maybe in hindsight it it's beneficial. I think having that two or three years of grayness of my parents supporting me was really helpful for me That's good, I like it.
1: I want to be respectful of your time. Do you have any no so I have one last question being yeah. a fortune teller future seer um I'm kidding. Uh, there was there was a statement that was made. I, I've just this has been rattling my head since I've been reading your book. Um, there was a statement made at Go that not not when you were there, but that debt is the new asset with all the money printing and everything going on. And I'm trying to reconcile this as a business owner, a real estate guy. I've always loved leverage, but also you know just just tempering all. What what do you think about that?
0: I think technically. If you want to look at a spreadsheet and crunch the numbers, it's absolutely right, 100% right. If you can get a 30-year fixed rate mortgage for 2.7% and live in a world with 6% inflation, Mm -hmm. it's the easiest, like, yes, you should do that all day long. I don't have any debt whatsoever, no mortgage, not a single penny of debt ever, which is, I write in the book, it's the craziest, it's the worst financial decision we've ever made. Mm. By, By far, we've lost so much money doing that relative to what we could have had. But it's the best money decision we've ever made because independence and autonomy means everything to us. So the fact that this is our house, not the bank's house, doesn't matter, we can go into the Great Depression tomorrow, this is our house, no one's gonna take this from us. No one, No, this is ours. That feeling, that philosophy means more to me than anything I can model on a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know how much money we've lost where if we had taken out as much mortgage as we could have and invested all that in an index fund, we'd have so much more money today. It doesn't bother me in the slightest because going to bed every night and tucking my kids in and being like, we got, no matter what happens, this is our home base. This is ours. No one's taking this away. Is That to me is is, is big is more than anything. So I think there's always a gap between what works on a spreadsheet and what's right to do on a spreadsheet and what actually makes you happy in life. And I would not recommend what I do to you or anyone else. Yeah. Some people might, this might be good, but for other people, it would drive them, they would not be able to sleep well at night if they knew how much money they were leaving on the table. So that, that makes a lot of sense too. I would say that it's easy to say debt is a new asset when, when the economy is booming and everything's going straight up and we've had 10 years of, but to me, when I hear stuff like that, I want to be like, do you not remember 2008? Do you not remember how many people were just absolutely ruined? Yeah. for having this mentality of debt as the new asset, which is that was a mentality in the early 2000s as well. Just like borrow, 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 borrow. And then everything blows up in 2008 and 1929. And like, there's so many histories of, like there's, there's such a long history of people making what seemed like good, smart financial decisions on a spreadsheet mm-hmm. and then ends up blowing in their face. And debt is the common denominator in all of them. Mm. And that's why I just wanted, I just wanted, I don't want to, I don't want to come near it. I almost think there's an analogy here. Maybe this is a step too far, but like, there are a lot of drugs that are perfectly fine in the right doses and are mm-hmm. b- completely harmless in the right doses. But there's also so many histories of that, the people just going too far, a little bit too far, and they think they're doing it the right way. And then they wake up the one morning and say, oh my gosh, I ruined my life or you know, everything blew up in my face. And it's just like, even if there is a safe amount of some drugs to take, I don't want to come near any of them because it's like, there's so much history of that blowing up in people's faces. So that's kind of how I view, that's how, that's, that's how I view those things. Maybe that's just a reflection of my personality. I'm more, you know, I'm, I'm more risk averse than others. Maybe that's the case. And I think that probably is the case in some senses, but I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm purposely happy having no, having no debt. It doesn't bother me in, in the slightest, even if I know that on the spreadsheet, it's the wrong thing to do these days.
1: Well, the comment that you made about, you know, 9-11 and coronavirus and whatever comes next, like it, that, that kind of anchored for me because we don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't know what it's going to be.
0: Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people who last March woke up at two in the morning and went, oh my gosh, this is, yeah. this is really bad. And the fact that we ended up by and large, okay, for most people does not take away from the fact that it could have and probably should have turned out so much different than it could have. Yes. And there's a really good book. I've, I've written about this a lot. It's called, it's called The Great Depression, A Diary. And what it was, was there was a lawyer in Ohio named Benjamin Roth, who during the 1930s just kept a really uh, detailed diary. And his son published it in 2010. And it just turned into what I think is the best economics book, the best finance book ever written. He's just, he's, it's just a daily recollection of what happened during the Great Depression. And he talks so much about what we just said, that during the 1920s, everyone said, debt is a path to riches, borrow money cheap. They're giving like the bank, like borrow money at 3%, invest it at 8%. That's how you get rich. And in the 1930s, everyone just went, like everyone just realized how much of a joke that was at the time and how much they regretted it at the time. The other story, i write read about this in the book, but it's my fa- one of my favorite investing stories is everyone knows Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, like the, like the two most successful investors of all time. But you go back to the 1970s, and there was a third member of that group, a guy named Rick Gurren. And Rick Gurren was as good, of it, as good as, at investing as Warren Buffett. He was as smart as Warren Buffett. He was, he was Warren Buffett's partner. And you never hear about him anymore, because in the 1970s, he got leveraged up with margin debt. Mm. And he basically went bankrupt. Warren Buffett had to buy his Berkshire Hathaway stock back from him to prevent him from actually technically going bankrupt. But he went broke in the 1970s. And Buffett made this comment that he and Charlie Munger always knew that they would be rich. So they were not in a hurry. They, had, they, were not, they, they didn't need to say, like, let's go out and take as much debt as we can to lever this up. Mm. They knew that they were going to get rich. And he said Rick Gurin was just as smart as them, but he was in a hurry he wanted to get rich really fast. So he wanted to take out as much debt as he could to maximize it. Wow. And it ended up blowing up in his face. So that to me was like a really telling part of this too, is that part of it? the reason I don't have any debt and don't have any desire to get any debt is because I'm more than happy to get rich slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's totally fine with me. And I'm willing to get rich slowly if it takes the, the odds of disaster off the table. And since I have no debt, it's hard to imagine, you know, financial disaster in, in our household. It could happen, but it's hard to imagine. And that's worth it for me. That's that's well worth it for me. So that's that's my philosophies on debt. So good.
1: I love the statement that you made in the book, immeasur- the immeasurable benefits of savings. Um, that, that really stuck out to me.
0: It's like, if you are only saving for risks that you can imagine and think about, you're doing it wrong. You have to be saving for things that you cannot imagine. In a world where there are 9 and COVIDs and Pearl Harbors, et cetera, and a lot of people only save for the things that make sense to them. And they're going to miss the big news stories 10 times out of 10. Because the biggest news stories are always what you cannot fathom, you can't imagine. And that's true now. Like the biggest news story of the next year, little in the next decade, the biggest news story of the next year, I guarantee you is something that all three of us can't even imagine right now. Wow. So how do you save for that? You have to have a level of savings that doesn't make sense. It's the only way you can get around it. So good.
1: Well, I super appreciate you, um taking the time with us and doing all this.
0: It's been amazing. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's I, I, I've, I've enjoyed it just as much, I hope. So I, it's, this has been a lot of fun for me, but let's, let's stay in touch.
1: If you found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.